some, somewhere between 40,000 years ago and 30,000 years ago, scientists can pin it down in a 10,000-year time frame there. But sometime between 40,000 years ago and 30,000 years ago, humanity experienced a new thing. During this time, humanity was still in that hunter-gatherer phase of humanity's development, living across a vast expanse of ice and snow that covered the earth. And the new thing that happened was the first ever animal species moved from wild to domesticated during this 10,000-year period of time. Somewhere in between 40 and 30,000 years ago, the first ever animal species moved from wild to becoming domesticated. There was only one species of animal that became domesticated during the hunter-gatherer phase of humanity's development, and that was the canine species. During this time, humanity and canines learn how to live together. Scientists don't have consensus around where on the globe this happened first, but there are two likely places, one, Central Asia, or two, Eastern Europe, or perhaps a third option is that it happens in both places. But within 15,000 years, canines are domesticated across the globe, and people and dogs find themselves in relationship one with another, cooperating and collaborating in life. There's no certainty exactly how it began in the very beginning stages. Some people believe that as wolves began to encroach closer into campfires, human beings threw them scraps of meat. Other scientists say that because human beings have a more slowly evolving digestive system, we are not able to survive alone, especially during the wintertime, only on lean meat, that there was an abundance of lean meat in places where humans gathered together. While the canine species is able to survive on lean meat, so dogs were attracted in to these piles of meat that were left as tribes of people moved from one place to another. But we know for sure that 14,000 years ago, archaeologists have discovered burial sites where human beings are also buried next to dogs. There is that idea that pops up into our mind that about 14,000 years ago, dogs became humanity's best friend. 
Now, some of you are sitting in these pews and scratching your heads and wondering why I am talking to you about the domestication of canines on Christmas Eve when we have just seen the pageant of all pageants. <laughs> what I mean to direct you toward is this reality around the Christmas story. The Christmas story that we have is utterly domesticated. I mean to tell you that if we were here to, to, if we were to hear this story in a different way, I mean to tell you that the Christmas story is a wolf, not a pageant or a Pomeranian. It's a story that's wild. And if we make the decision tonight to see the story with fresh eyes or to hear the story with undomesticated ears or to welcome the story in with an open and wild heart, we might find God meeting us in a wild place in a chaotic time. It's not that I am against the domesticated story of Christmas. I love a Christmas pageant. <laughs> but there is something about this year and a few other years where I feel like we need the wolf. We need the wild story that is the true and raw story of Christmas. So let's see if we can take it back and hear it again anew. Luke's nativity begins almost at the very beginning of chapter 1. We hear chapter 2 in its entirety of the Christmas pageant, but we need to go backwards from into chapter 1 and listen to the details of the story. The very beginning of the story starts with the arrival of a cosmic, mystical being named Gabriel. Gabriel is an archangel, a warrior angel, whose vocation is to bring the will of God to humanity. And Gabriel meets Zechariah. Zechariah is an elderly priest. His squad is on for the evening. And because Zechariah is the elder, it's his job to go into the holiest of places and offer sacrifices to God. It is a remarkably sacred role that Zechariah holds. As he moves into that uber-sacred space, he's met by a cosmic, fiery, wild being who tells him the craziest of stories the wildest of tales. Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, Zechariah, your wife, your elderly wife Elizabeth, will conceive a child, though she has never been able to conceive a child, and that has been your great wish. Your elderly wife Elizabeth will conceive a child, and this child this child will be a special one. He'll be a wild one. He'll be wild. He'll call Israel. He'll call the faithful out into the wilderness where they will be met by a new and renewed 
and fresh experience of God's presence. This child will never have wine or any intoxicating substance touch his lips. He will be that pure, and he will survive on locusts and wild honey. Oh, and Zechariah, one more detail. You won't name him Junior. You will name him John. And then in the next crazy moment, as if the moment wasn't crazy enough, Zechariah is struck dumb and unable to tell anyone of the experience that he's had. Now, in the interest of transparency, I would say, like, if one was to encounter an archangel, this is probably the most likely place on earth that one would encounter an archangel. Zechariah being a priest of priests and this place being the holy of holies, maybe you would expect it. But I don't know. Wings, fiery trumpet, prophecy being struck dumb. The story is wild. The very next beat is another encounter with Gabriel, yet a very different one. Such a curious encounter. Rather than that angel showing himself to the priest of all priests, that angel comes to a teenage girl, one who is engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. Mary's probably somewhere in between 14 and 16 years old. And that angel comes to Mary as she sits alone and tells her a crazy story. Hey, hey, Mary, guess what? You're God's favorite. Of all the people on earth, you, Mary, a young woman, have been chosen by God, the author and creator of the universe, to bear God's son. You won't come together with your husband, Joseph, and bear a child like the vast majority of us do. Rather, the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, will come into your body and you will find yourself pregnant. And the child that you bear, the child that you bear will be so extraordinary that that child we be called the Son of God. Mary, Mary, it's you. It's little old you. As if the story doesn't get any wilder, what does Mary do? She goes to the one person on the planet who can understand what's happening to her, who has had a similarly but not the same wild experience. She goes to her elderly cousin Elizabeth, and when they come together, John, this child in Elizabeth's womb, acknowledges Mary's presence by leaping for joy in her womb. 
It is a wild story. The next beat is Joseph, right? Anybody here ever been a guy engaged to a gal? Joseph gets the news that his teenage wife is pregnant with God's child. Wait a minute. Come back, Mary. Explain this to me again. How does this go? Mary, Joseph, I swear to you, this is what's happening. And then we pick up the story from where we've heard it today. The first beat of the story that we hear today, the very beginning of chapter 2 in the Lucan nativity story is what? Do you know? It's like, hey, uh, look, uh, Joseph and Mary, I know you guys engaged. I know you're expecting a baby. I know you're expecting the baby under crazy circumstances. By the way, we're raising your taxes, that's what this whole census is about. And hey, um, in order for us to raise your taxes and count you, you need to make the 95-mile trip from where you live in Galilee down to Joseph's family's place where they all gather in order to register, Bethlehem. And you're going to do that on the back of a donkey. And oh, Hey, Mary, by the way, you're going to do that on the back of a donkey in the third trimester of your third trimester of pregnancy. That's the next beat of the story. They arrive in Bethlehem, this incredibly symbolic city, the city of David, Israel's most celebrated, strongest, most charismatic, or as the teenagers say, the king with the most riz. <clears throat> they arrive in the city of Bethlehem. And because everyone has come to be counted, to receive an increase in their taxes, there are no hotel rooms for them to stay in. They scramble around and they find them a place in a barn. Now, we've domesticated that reality right here, right? This looks quaint. But let me assure you, no woman, no woman wants to give birth in a barn. None. Zero. The only animal that wants to give birth in a barn is a cow in the springtime here in Jackson, Wyoming. It's like, rather than have that calf in the snow, I would like to be in the warm barn, right? But barns are dirty and grimy and uncomfortable. No woman wants to give birth to a baby in a barn. And yet, and yet, that is how the story unfolds. The babe is born to Mary and to Joseph in the barn, and then the next beat of the story is this crazy constituency of people who come to see this baby. The first group, shepherds. What? Yeah, shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night, also visited by cosmic beings who are like, hey guys, 
leave the sheep and goat in the field and go find a baby lying in straw in a barn. You're never going to believe what's coming from this kid. Not only is it that working class constituency that joins the holy family in the barn, there's another group too, right? You know, it's not the shepherd's friends, the welders. It's the foreign dignitaries. An entourage of foreign dignitaries of royalty from another country have like not gotten the email and said they need to arrive in 12 days. They followed a star. <laughs> they followed a star to get to a barn where a baby was born. In the next and the last beat of the Lucan nativity narrative, we find the holy family on the move again at the threat of the death of the child Jesus. Mary and Joseph are on the run. They flee to the desert in Egypt in order to keep their baby safe. Christmas is a wolf, not a Pomeranian. And not one of those gray wolves either. It's one of those cool-looking black wolves with the yellow eyes that we're so lucky to get a glimpse of in the Lamar Valley in the summertime. This story, this story is undomesticated, and it's wild. It meets us right where we need to be met. Christmas is a wolf not a Pomeranian. Maybe you all are aware that war is happening in Eastern Europe, that war is happening in the Middle East. You have, you all have some sense of the saber-rattling that's happening in Washington, D.C., the utter refusal to cooperate and to collaborate one with another in a system that is built toward and relies on cooperation and collaboration. It's happening in Washington. It's happening in Cheyenne. It happens in some ways in this bubble in Teton County. And there is no doubt in my mind that it is happening at at least 25% of our Christmas living rooms and dinner tables. Chaos is among us. Hard and wild times are being lived out. But when we listen to this story in its rawest and truest sense, we don't hear a story about a God who waits for us to get it all together, about a God who is waiting for us to bring in and usher in the peace and the cooperative and collaborative era that we know we're on the verge of. Rather, this is a God who meets us in the midst 
of humanity's sheer and utter chaos. Some years we need the wolf, not the Pomeranian. And church, this is one of those years. We have the profoundest of opportunities as God comes among us again on this night, we have the profound opportunity to join God in a bold move in spreading and sharing loving kindness in a wild time of chaos. Church, we have a mission amidst this mess. And that mission is the spread of love. And if you and I are right here and right now, by virtue of us being together in this room, then the spread of love, the mission of God come among us again, begins to happen right here, right now, in this place, with us together. Merry Wild Christmas.